How what's not to love about this wonderful time of the year? How, how delightful it is. I want to remind you about something I didn't mention earlier. The ladies have a Christmas luncheon on Saturday, and I lost my little piece of paper that had the details on it. Here it is. The ladies' Christmas luncheon is at 1130. I want to remind you about that. So that uh, sign up to bring a dish or there's detail in your bulletin. You can look at that. But I wanted to make sure that you knew that that's all for all the ladies. And if you're new to us, you, our ladies are some of the sweetest uh, Christian ladies on earth. You want to get to know them. So come and be a part of that. Enjoy that Christmas uh, time together here at Bethel on Saturday. And now our message in Ruth today, I'm calling between Moab and Bethlehem. You want to have your Bible open to Ruth in chapter 1 and verses 1 through 22, the first chapter of Ruth. And again, the message I'm calling between Moab and Bethlehem. So I was watching the Waltons this week, like I do, in the first season of the Waltons. There's a program where the children, all the children, remember there are seven four boys, three girls in the Walton family living at the base of Walton's Mountain, the story written by Earl Hamner. Um, who recently passed, and uh, living at the base of Walton's Mountain, and the kids were going to the circus. But it was during the Depression, and so they didn't have money. All the children were working as hard as they could to get just a little bit of money so they could pay their way into the circus, and it was important to them. At the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the program, at the beginning of this episode, they were all talking about who had how much money. And Grandma, you know, she, remember Grandma? She's very matter-of-fact. She's over there cleaning, and she's wiping down the table. And the children are excitedly talking about the circus and how much money it's going to cost and how much money they have. And if they, have a, if they sell some eggs, they can get enough, and they can all go to the circus. And about that time, Grandma, who's wiping down the table, doesn't realize it, but she swipes her glasses off the table, and they go over against the stove, and they shatter. And it's the Depression. And they, they immediately begin to say, what are we going to do now? And my glasses are broken. And they said, we'll have to buy you new ones. And she says, we don't have money for new ones. That would be $5. Where are we going to get $5? And the children, you could see them looking at each other because they had money, you know. And then off to the side, they're saying, John Boy, he initiates it. He says to Mary Ellen, I'll give my money if you give your money. And she says, for grandma's glasses, I'll give my circus money. And then Jason says, I'll give my circus money too. And then little Elizabeth and Aaron and Jim Bob, they all say, I'll give my circus money to grandma. And we're five minutes in and I'm crying. (laughs) And then at the end, you know how it goes. It's dark all around the house. And John Boy, he's up in his window, he's writing. And then you hear everybody saying, good night, good night, Jim Bob, good night, Mary Ellen, good night, Grandma. And I'm crying again. Because who doesn't love a story of love and of reversal and of redemption? Who doesn't love a story of redemption? Stories of love and stories of redemption are powerful, powerful stories. All your life, you have been told that God came into the world in the person of a little child, a little baby, the Christ child. When you were a tiny child, you might have just added that to all the other sentimental, mysterious, puzzling, charming stories that grown-ups told you at bedtime. 
But through the years, though, you begin to see that that story was, it was treated differently than the other stories. It was told more often than the other stories. Greater weight was given to it than the other story. And soon, you begin to realize that the calendar was organized around that story. Every week, maybe like me, two or three times every week, you went to a special place to hear that story over and over again. You sang of it regularly, and you retold it in symbolic ways through the dramas of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. At a special time of the year, you celebrated the story that God came down to us. They say the angels sang, you know, and heaven exploded with brightness and earth with glad joy. And I'm sure that you noticed that the celebration was surrounded with the most wonderful traditions and family gatherings and beautiful decorations and colorful pageantry and feasting. And you probably even sang about Jesus in your school during the month of December. And all the stores and shops played Christmas carols. Adults around you, they worked and they planned. And they stayed up into the night to see to it that on the morning of Jesus' birth, you would have things awaiting for you in, in large stockings hanging over the fireplace and piles of brightly colored gifts under a glowing, fragrant tree. For many of you, sometime during your childhood, something happened deep in your soul. Something wonderful and something wistful happened. Something stirred in you. It was even more wonderful than Christmas itself, but in a way it was the explanation of Christmas and an extension of Christmas, and you felt it stirring in your soul, and Christmas became more meaningful to you then. Somehow you found in the story of Jesus answers for the deepest questions in your soul. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? What about my guilt? What about my shame? What, what happens when I die? And when the people I love or when the creatures I love die, what happens to them? So pastors and, and teachers and parents and grandparents pointed you to this story, the story of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And they pointed you to that story to help you make sense of your own life. Now somewhere along the way, some of us, when we were very young, most of us a little later, we encountered a deep sorrow, a painful hurt, a confusing betrayal, a dark trial, or a question that we couldn't answer. And for some of us, this, this shook us to the very core. And for others, it planted a small seed of doubt in our minds. For some of us, temptation to despair or disbelief grew up like weeds tangling around our faith. Now, here we are in a season where millions of Christians around the world and across the centuries have called it the season of Advent. The Advent, the appearing, the arrival, the arrival of Christ. The Christian church considers again the appearing, the arrival, the advent of God in Jesus. And we tell the story again. And we sing the story again. And we celebrate the story again. But every year we tell it, and every year we sing it, and we whisper it, and we shout it. We shout it into the darkness that seems to be pressing in more and more. And it, and it sometimes feels like we're gathering sticks and branches to stir up into warm, bright, dancing flame the fire of our faith that God came down. And we're reminding ourselves again that 
all the feasting and giving and singing and lighting lights against the darkness. They, they really mean something. They represent something that's deeply, eternally true and worthy and noble and wonderful. I was in Indiana with a man. He gave me permission to tell his story. He was a very troubled man. He had very dark troubles. And he needed counsel. And there's certainly no shame in that. We decided that we would go to this ministry called 12 Stones and meet in a cabin in Brown County, Indiana, a beautiful part of Indiana. And we would go there for the weekend to help him get intense counseling. And I would be his advocate. I would just listen and be his friend. This beautiful cabin that was nestled in this beautiful area of southern Indiana it had a fireplace. <laughs> and we sat there in the room when the counselor came and we looked at the fireplace. I thought to myself, I wish there was a fire in the fireplace. It just didn't seem right for us to be in this beautiful place with a fireplace and gather around a fireplace and no fire. And we went through the first session and it was, it was good to, to listen and he began to kind of tell his, his, the story of his life and, and, and they began to kind of help him. They just, he, the, the counselor was just a really gifted counselor and he was a great listener and he just drew this man out and he was just telling his story. And it got a little bit chilly. And the guys kind of looked at each other. And they said, does anybody here know how to start a fire? And I was like, no way going to try to start a fire in front of other men. That was just not going to happen. And they must have felt the same way. They kind of looked at each other. So the guy that was the counselor, he probably figured it was his responsibility to get the fire started. And he went over there and made a pitiful attempt at starting a fire. It was just, it was laughable. I thought, I can't start fires, but I could definitely start a fire better than him. And he goes, does somebody else want to try this? And I'm like, not me. <laughs> the other guy, the guy that was there for the council, he says, well, I guess I'll try. He goes over and he builds this elaborate thing and he lights it and it just bursts into flame. I mean, he had built many fires before he knew what he was doing. All of a sudden, we had a warm beautiful fire kind of changed the whole atmosphere we come to a time like this and we feel darkness pressing in around us or we're tested or we have to go through trials or we grow up and we realize that our life isn't going to be one endless romance and we realize our life is going to be touched with some tragedy or hardship or heartache or difficulty or questions we come to a place like this and we tell stories like we're going to tell this month in order to gather sticks to build up the fire of our faith. We who gather at Bethel Church, are, we're gathering sticks to build or to rebuild the fire of our faith in Jesus at Christmas. And I don't know who you are or why you're here. I don't know if you're a card-carrying Christian or if you're just a curious person that maybe a friend brought you. I do know this. What we're going to do is we're going to tell you a story that has warmed and the hearts and, and transform the lives of millions of people around the world across time. And you're invited to hear it. Now, there was a man like this. His name was Matthew. He was an early, unlikely follower of Jesus, Matthew Levi. He had been a despised publican, a Jewish man who collaborated with the cruel, occupying Romans. You might think of him as kind of like a buckeye or something. He he became a sincere and devout follower of Jesus, though. And he helped many others follow Jesus. And he still does. So the first gospel in the Bible, the stories, you know, of Jesus, is named the gospel of Jesus, 
according to Matthew. And Matthew, guided by the Holy Spirit, dwelling in him, begins the Jesus story with the mo- in a most unusual way. You know, usually you start a story by saying, once upon a time. But this is not how Matthew started his Jesus story. Matthew started his Jesus story in a very unusual way. He started his Jesus story with a genealogy of all things, in which he says something very unusual. He does something very unusual in his time, in a very patriarchal time. He includes the names of women in his genealogy. He includes the names of four women, and all of them are named with some taint of controversy attached to them. The names included in the genealogy that Matthew tells in the story of Jesus are Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth. Now Tamar, she's listed. Her story has shameful chapters in it. Rahab is listed, a.k.a. Rahab the harlot. And also listed is the wife of Uriah. I mean, that's a dark story. We know her name is Bathsheba. She's well known for the dark incident with David. And there's another woman named by Matthew and included by the Holy Spirit, and her name is Ruth. Now, plot twist alert. Put on your thinking cap and listen. David, the great king of Israel, his father is Jesse, and Jesse's father is Obed, and Obed was the son of a man named Boaz, who's the son of Rahab, a.k.a. Rahab the harlot. Boaz is the son of Rahab the harlot, from Moab of all places, and Moab is infamous as an enemy of God's people, Israel. Great King David's grandmother was once a pagan, godless woman from Moab, and the Moabites were the products of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Now, these are the women that are listed in the Jesus story for some mysterious reason. More about this later, but this is a clue that sends us back to Ruth gathering sticks for the fire of our faith at Advent. The drama has some mystery in it now, doesn't it? So David's grandfather was the son of a woman who had been a prostitute. His grandmother was from Moab. So with Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Ruth, let's just say the wonderful stories of Christmas, there are some dizzying plot twists. But we walk among the stories today to gather fuel for the fire of our faith every year when the weather turns cold. And this December, the season of Advent will warm our hearts by the fire of a little story, a little drama. We call it an Advent drama named after a pagan woman from Moab who came to trust in Yahweh and loyally follow him. Ruth, her beautiful drama, is set in the times of the judges. These are dark times after God brought his people into the promised land. They repeatedly rebelled against him he would raise up a judge. Do you remember this? And he would discipline his people. He would allow bad things to happen to them, a remedial discipline, in order to discipline them back into obedience. And then they would obey and they would have revival. Judges records multiple cycles of apostasy and revival. And if you read it, it is dark reading. It ends very dark, in a very dark and disturbing way. When you get to the end of Judges, it's just you want to close it and think, why is that in the Bible? It is a very ugly story. But the troubling stories are hard and dark and disturbing. But over them is a summary repeated in Judges. And you remember this. In those days, there was no king. 
in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So God's people did not constantly trust or faithfully obey Yahweh. Then while you're still trying to make sense of the disturbing images that you read in Judges, while you're trying to drive them out of your head, all of a sudden this beautiful story rises like sunrise. It's a story of redemption. It appears to warm our hearts and fuel our faith and remind us again that one day the king appeared on earth. And he was born in a town called Bethlehem. The book of Judges ends with a statement, in those days there was no king. And Ruth opens with, and this is Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king. My God is king. This is where our drama begins in Bethlehem Ephrata, Bethlehem house of bread. In the cycle of revival and apostasy, the story begins in a cycle of apostasy, most likely because there's a drought that God has sent. And God is allowing them to experience a season of testing Famine in the house of bread, if you can imagine. Each one of the actors now in the Ruth drama that we haven't yet read in the first chapter of the Ruth drama, each one of the actors will be tested. Elimelech will be tested. And Naomi will be tested. And and Malon and Kilion and Orpah and Ruth, they'll all be tested. Now, you should, after that brief introduction, you should be interested in hearing me read parts of the story. Let's read part of it, Ruth in chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And a dark story just got darker. It's a story. So there's Elimelech, and there is his wife Naomi, and their sons Malon and Kilion, and two pagan women, Naomi and Orpah, and all of them will be tested. The man named Elimelech is tested with his adequacy, if you will. What am I going to do? There's a famine in the land. How am I going to provide for my family? And he makes a decision that's clearly not a decision in faith. He leaves, instead of, instead of appealing for revival, which would lift the drought, instead of working for revival and obeying God, instead of trusting God, he takes his family to, of all places, Moab. Of all places, he takes them to Moab. He's tested, you could say, in his adequacy, and in his test, he he fails. I say he fails. He should have trusted God. He should have obeyed him. He should have preached and prayed and worked for revival. He should have, or died faithful, but instead he failed the test, and he moved to Moab. It wouldn't have been easy to make the right decision, but still, God would have helped him. Elimelech was tested, and he failed. That's just setting up the story. Now, the sons, Malon and Kilion, are tested in, in their relationships because when they go to this other land, instead of marrying believing wives, 
they marry Moabites. They should have married in the faith or died single. Instead, when faced with the test of relationships, they failed. And they married Moabites. They failed in the test of their relationships. While we're thinking about it, you might keep in mind, what are you being tested with right now? And will you trust? And will you obey? But then there is Naomi, and she's a key player in the story. Naomi is tested in her sorrow, and she's tested in her loss. You see all this in the first five verses of this beautiful story. She's tested early on with hunger and insecurity. She's tested in trusting her obviously imperfect husband. She's tested in the weakness of her husband's faith. She's tested with the loss of her husband, with grief, with insecurity, with the loss of her sons. Feel the weight of that sorrow. She lives in a dark time, and the people around her are disobedient to God, and because of it, they're in a drought, and then her husband makes a wrong decision, and her husband dies, and her sons take wives that are not believers, and they die. This woman has had darkness upon darkness and sorrow upon sorrow. Now, this is interesting because in the story, it's where the dialogue begins. And the dialogue in the story, it signals the heart of the story. The rest of the story is just setting up this dialogue. And if you will, the central idea of this that God wants to get across to us that's so helpful to us is embedded in this. But there are two other players, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah and Ruth are these Moabite women, these pagan wives, these, these women without God. They understand these are young women who, through no fault of their own, find themselves in a place where their people are seen by others as outcasts. They have dark shame hanging over them all their life. Maybe some of you here today feel like you lived your whole life under a cloud of dark shame. Maybe not. And then they were widows. How sad and painful and lonely and insecure would you be in that culture as a woman who was a widow? And they were childless. And then they had the burden of, in a sense, they had the burden of Naomi, too. And their husband's faith was probably not strong, but weak. And then they had these damning rival worldviews that were embedded in their souls from when they were tiny little girls. So then we get to the heart of the drama, beginning in verse 6. Then arose, she arose, this Naomi, rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, where she had heard the fields of, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So you, you have a picture. Jerusalem is here, and south of Jerusalem and south and a wee bit to the west is Bethlehem over in the rolling plains. But then directly to the east of that, some distance, is uh, the body of water on the Dead Sea. And on the other side, the land of Moab, you'd have to go a bit north. It's quite a ways over into Moab in, in modern Jordan. And so the Lord visited his people and gave them food they heard in those fields of Moab. And verse 7 says, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went to the way to return to the land of Judah. Now they're on the road between Moab and home, Bethlehem. The Lord grant they, oh, I'm sorry, but Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return, each one of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. So there you have it, women on the road between Moab and Bethlehem. With sorrow upon sorrow and fear upon fear, guilt and shame and dark things hanging over them and really not sure and what to do. And Naomi's going back to Bethlehem and she says to her daughter-in-law, you might as well go back home. Maybe you'll have, things will go better for you there than they would be if I drug Moabite women back to Israel. They said to her, no, we will not return with you to your people. Naomi then counters. She says, verse 11, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceeding bitter for me. For your sake, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then verse 14 repeats what verse 9 said. Then they, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now Ruth is going to talk. And this is the sweet spot, I think. This is Ruth, the Moabite daughter-in-law, and Ruth says in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where I go, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where, I di where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth makes a vow to follow her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law's God to the death and beyond. And Naomi saw she was determined to go with her. And he said no more. So what's interesting in this story is Orpah is demonstrative. She's weeping She's clinging to Naomi, and then she's leaving. She also made some promises. Now, we're not going to go anywhere, but she was easily discouraged from that. And then she went away. Now, the Bible doesn't say that Ruth touched her. doesn't say that Ruth clung to her. doesn't say that Ruth hugged her. Ruth just steadily looks her in the eye and vows to follow her and follow her God to the death. This is a beautiful piece of a very sad story now the next the last section is interesting verses 19 to 22 we'll go through 21 verse 18 naomi sees that she's determined ruth is determined to go with her and she doesn't say anything more now they resume their trip to bethlehem from the on the road from moab to bethlehem they they dry their tears and on they walk or they continue to weep and they walk and the two of them went until they came to bethlehem and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Her name, Naomi, means pleasant. 
Mara means bitter. She says, you knew me as pleasant, but bitter circumstances of bitter providence has fallen upon me. I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and came to Bethlehem, question that comes up is, in your mind, was, was Naomi bitter? Was Naomi, did, did Naomi descend into sinful bitterness? Was, was Naomi's faith weak? Was she a good guy or a bad guy in the story? Girl. Well, we have to be careful that we don't in, impose language on the Bible that's language from, that as helpful as it might be, from contemporary psychological definitions. Was Naomi bitter? I don't think Naomi was without faith based on my long experience with humans and having, having read the rest of the story. I believe Naomi is a person of sincere faith who's wrestling through a season of bitter providence, kind of like, you know, us. She's dealing with a bitter providence, and she knew it. She knew that what she'd experienced was something that God had allowed. And perhaps because of the sin of others around her, perhaps because of her own culpability in some regards, I think her lament, like all of us, she's wrestling with seeing the sweetness of the bitter in the circumstances, the bitter test we often face. She's trying to help Ruth count the cost. You can come back with me, but if you come back with me, you got to understand it's going to be hard. you got to be serious about this. Orpah's like, yeah, you're right. I'm gone. And Ruth is like, I understand. Let's go. And if you haven't figured this out, you want to be like Ruth in this story. And the implication is, because God gave us this story, God, the Holy Spirit, inspired this story, he's going to show us a way that even when we are severely tested in our adequacy, in our relationships, in our security, in our money, in our future, God will give us the wherewithal to trust Yahweh and to obey him. On the road from Moab to Bethlehem, you'll weep, and you'll have to choose a way. Will you go back, or will you trust, and will you obey? Will the drama of your life be a tragedy, or will it be a tragedy that turns into a romance? Your life doesn't have to be a tragedy, if you stir up the fire of your faith, you trust and obey, it could be a drama of love and of redemption. And you know, those are the best stories, right? Those are the best stories. So the other night, the family was all in, 22 people in our 1,200-square-foot farmhouse. 22 people. Lois heroically fed. She made two full Thanksgiving meals to accommodate our guests. And our loved ones gathered into our house, and it was hot. It was hot. There were so many bodies stuffed in our little house. It was hot. It was wonderful. So I walked over, and I turned the furnace off. And we went all day on Thanksgiving without having to use the furnace in Michigan. That's a smiling providence. That night, in the middle of the night, I'm in my bed, and I think, wow, is the, the house is cold. <laughs> it was so cold. I thought, wow, this is unusually cold. And then it, I realized that some knucklehead turned a furnace off. <laughs> so I went down and I stirred the fire. Well, that's the romantic way of looking at it. I just 
flipped a button on a furnace. And then the furnace came back to life and, and the house got warm again like it's supposed to. Everybody was well and warm and well-fed and happy. I hope today as I've reminded you of this beautiful story that you have identified in your own heart a test that you might be facing and that you see Jesus walking into your life and saying, I'm here to help you pass that test. But you have to trust me and you have to obey me. Even if it kills you, you have to have the spirit of Ruth and you can. You can have the spirit of Ruth. What will happen with these weeping widows at the branch in the road between Moab and Bethlehem? hungry in the house of bread, wrestling with bitterness in Bethlehem. We will see what kind of fire this will make us as we gather more sticks in Act 2, our chapter 2. Next week, Naomi left the house of bread, Bethlehem, and she has returned. And the act ends with a heartwarming, hopeful phrase. Did you see it at the very end? I didn't read it yet. Here's how it ends. And they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's a storyteller's foreshadowing that something good is going to happen. Can you believe that God has something good for you on the other side of your test? Can you believe that God has a meal for you in the house of bread? Can you believe that good can come in the middle of bad, that light can dawn in the darkness? This is the question that we have Sometimes we're hungry, and sometimes we're scared. Sometimes we're afraid, and we're out of control, and we're lonely or poor. Sometimes we're insecure, and sometimes we're guilty, and sometimes we're ashamed, and sometimes we're betrayed, and sometimes we're abandoned, and sometimes we're unjustly injured, and sometimes we just stand in the road between Moab and Bethlehem, and we just weep. But God... We're here today and we're warming our hands by your fire. And this is what we want to say. God, I will trust you and I will obey. I will never stop following you. I will go where you go. I will stay where you stay. Your people will be my people. You are my God forever and no other.